0: God occasionally giving to his very wayward people, judges, uh, people that were called by God to at least temporarily deliver his people from the oppression that they were suffering. And uh, because there's a lot of judges, I I felt like I had to spend at least one week in our time talking about them and what it was like and who they are. And so uh, of of a couple well-known characters and beloved Bible heroes, Gideon or Samson, I had to pick one for this week, and I decided to pick the one that you can most ad- easily identify with, and that would be Gideon, the weak one, um, I don't think any of you are going to kill a couple hundred people with a jawbone of an au- ox, uh, or have someone try to cut your hair to sap your strength. So uh, we're going to talk about Gideon this week, and uh, we're going to do something a little different instead of reading the text all at once, because we're reading parts of chapter 6, 7, and 8. I'm going to read a little bit, talk about it, read a little bit, and talk about it. So I'm going to start by reading chapter 6, verses 1 to 10. It sort of sets the stage and introduces us to our problem. And uh, then I'll pray and we'll jump in. So chapter 6, verse 1. should be a familiar sound by now, this first verse. The people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord gave them into the hand of Midian seven years. And the hand of Midian oppressed, overpowered Israel, and because of Midian The people of Israel made for themselves dens in the mountains and caves and strongholds. For whenever the Israelites planted crops, the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. And they would encamp against them and devour the produce of the land as far as Gaza and leave no sustenance in Israel, no sheep or ox or donkey. They would come up with their livestock and their tents and they would come like locusts in number. Both they and their camels could not be counted. And so they laid waste to the land as they came in. And Israel was brought very low because of Midian. And the people of Israel cried out for help to the Lord. And when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord on on account of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the people of Israel and said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you into the house of slavery. I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And I said to you, I am the Lord, your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you have not obeyed my voice. All right, I'm going to pray. Feel free to join me. Uh, Good Father, as we kick off this uh, last lap of the school year, um, kind of a privilege to be able to do so with these students and your word, and we pray, Lord, you'd be kind to show us uh, great things in this word, show us uh, your greatness and goodness and our need for you, and we ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen, uh, can you think of an occasion where you came face to face and had to admit how weak you were? how weak that's something we are averse to admitting our weakness. Uh, frankly, this is one of the reasons I really do enjoy the weight room. For those of you that know me know I love the weight room i 'm there often. I'll, you can find me there with a book. I like just make myself at home there and read um, because I find it uh, somehow uh, really gra- like grounds me in reality that with all the weight bearing down on me, that some days I'm just forced to conclude, not today, I'm just too weak. It just happens, and that's okay. Uh, last week, a bunch of us were in Yakima, Washington, and uh, our team worked hard. We made sheds, we split wood, we fixed homes, we... I believe in God's good plan. We made a difference. And yet I think each one of us had a moment where, in interacting with a child or a family, we, we used our imagination to think about the broader context of their life and struggles. And we said to ourselves, I can't fix that. I'm too weak. And now we're back here and you're under a pile of work. And maybe you just took a class or an exam that just crushed you. And you're wrestling with whether or not to admit, I may not have it for this degree or this class. Maybe maybe I'm just not cut out for it. And some of you are facing uh, graduation in a few weeks, and graduation's no problem. You're just graduating. It's what comes after graduation that's frightening. And as you consider your paltry resume, I can't get a whole sheet, um... And, and how that resume stacks up beside the teeming masses of people that, just like you. Uh, for a few positions, you might look at that resume and say, it's pretty weak. But few of us ever have the, to, to face our weakness as brutally as the Israelites do in the beginning of this chapter. Outnumbered, unable to defend themselves, unable to feed themselves, forced to flee to holes in the mountains like cowards. Midian is the big bully that sits on their chest and eats their lunch, and they can't do anything about it. Year after year after year. And they cry for help, and verse 8 tells us God sends help. But you would hope for like an army or an A team, you know, like the Avengers. Or or the Justice League or something, um, but he sends a prophet. And uh, how's one old bearded dude, armed with a word, supposed to help? Is he Gandalf? No, that's no, just a prophet. <laughs> um, okay, what well you got? What well you got for me, old man? How can you help? And and to sum up his message in verses eight to ten, what he has to say to them is, this is your fault. (laughs) That's what he says to them in verses 8 to 10. A nice little summary. Uh, I'll I'll flush it out for you a little bit more. God delivered you and chose you and has given you everything, and you have not listened, i.e., this is your fault. But unwelcome as his words are, God is using the prophet to point out to them and to us a really, really hard but important lesson, and it's this. That our weakness, whether that's insufficiency or inadequacy or whatever the case may be, is not our biggest problem, not our greatest threat. It's our wayward hearts, that we don't listen, that we're disobedient. And what we're going to see tonight is that uh, though we fear and avoid weakness, God delights to use the weak. We fear and avoid weakness, but God delights to use the weak. So tonight, uh, as I read along and you follow along, here's what we're going to talk about, how God calls the weak and how he conquers through the weak, and then we're going to talk about the weakness of wayward hearts. Okay? So uh, we're going to pick up in chapter 6 and read a few more verses and see how God calls the weak. We're going to pick up in verse 11. The angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth that Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizrite, while his son Gideon was beating out wheat in the winepress to hide it from the Midianites, the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said, The Lord's with you, mighty man of valor. And Gideon said, Please, Lord, if the Lord's with us, why has all this happened? Where are all his wonderful deeds that our fathers recounted to us, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord's forsaken us and given us into the hand of Midian. And the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you? And Gideon said to him, Please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, But I will be with you, and you shall strike the Midianites as one man. And then I'm going to pick up verse 27, too, which will be out of context and might make any sense to you right now, but it'll make sense later. Later on, Gideon took with him ten of his servants and did as the Lord had told him. Because he was too afraid of his family and the men of the town to do it by day, he did it by night. So what we see here in chapter 6 is God calling the weak. And when we meet Gideon, we, we meet a fellow who seems to be altogether uninspiring. In verse 11, God, in the form of an angel, comes to him and Gideon is beating out wheat in a wine press. And if you don't know much about wheat or wine press, I'll just make it really simple. Wheat doesn't grow in wine presses. <laughs> the wine press is a hole in the ground that's for uh, smashing out the juice of grapes. You're supposed to, like, you know, take care of the wheat in the wheat field, out in the open. You could sling a big Sith or use one of these big tools they had in the ancient days to do it. But that would be far too brash and open. No, he, as the text is saying, is hiding from the Midianites. He's afraid. He's actually afraid to farm. Okay, he's afraid to farm. Um, this, is, this is a very, if Gideon's the hero of this story, this is a very uninspiring introduction. And, uh, and, and as we learn more about him, as God and him interact, he, he, he grows in his unimpressiveness. Uh, God says to him in verse 14, go in this might of yours, I don't think he's being ironic, and save Israel and uh, and Gideon replies, oh, I can almost imagine like a meek little voice. How can I save Israel? <laughs> he goes, on, how can I save them? I'm the weakest. Uh, my family is the weakest and I'm the least of them. And uh, I-, I think there's a couple facets of this that are really important for us to think about. One is uh, he really does have an unimpressive resume. I don't think he's making this up. Like I, I come from an unimpressive people and I'm the least impressive of the unimpressive family. He's the runt of the litter, and his litter is all runt. <laughs> That's, that seems to be Gideon. I don't think he's making it up. Uh, so he has an unimpressive resume. But, but on top of that, man, the guy has just owned it thoroughly and, uh, and made it who he is. Uh, there's a complete absence of any kind of self-belief. And uh, if you add it all together, it's just, it just seems like a complete unqualification that this guy is altogether lacking in experience and confidence to be a leader to bring God's people out of this oppression. He's a fearful farmer, not a not a military leader. But God calls him. He calls him, and uh, and then gives him a test. And I didn't really read the test to you, but the test is: Hey, you, you got to save Israel from Midian. But how about you start local right here in your own town? How about you tear down your father's idols and uh, and burn them and. Put up an altar like you're supposed to. And verse 27 tells us that he does. He does. But he's so afraid he does it at night. Uh, even in his faithfulness, he's afraid. But when you put it all together and see how God responds even to his fearfulness, you'd have to say that he might be unqualified, uninspiring, unimpressive. But he is not disqualified. Disqualified. Weak, inexperienced, inadequate, all true, Gideon. And yet God calls you anyway and promises in verse 16 to be with him. And then when Midian comes with all its forces later in chapter 6, beginning of verse 7, chapter 7, God is with him. Verse 34 tells us that the Spirit of the Lord comes and clothes Gideon. He is this close to Gideon. He is with him. So, uh, the really ironic picture here, I think, you know, it's God versus the Midianites. And the army of the Midianites, like locusts, well armed. And God says, All right, game's on. First off the bench, Gideon, you. (laughs) Gideon's like five foot nothing, hundred and nothing. You know, and get in the game, Gideon. And uh, it's. With the stakes as high as his people's freedom, God calls Gideon off the bench. And I think that's significant because it means, despite your lack of awesomeness, your adequacy, your sufficiency, the lack of impressiveness, in a kick-butt resume, none of those things disqualify you. None of those things disqualify you. Now, the problem, of course, is that some of you don't know that you're weak. And... Um, Maybe you're encountering that painful prospect now for the first time. Uh, I mentioned that at the beginning. Uh, Maybe something like last week's trip, and you're realizing, I've been a bit of an idealist. Maybe I can't change the world so easily. Or maybe uh, something as simple but really difficult as a freshman engineering class is making you realize, hey, I was sort of the show in high school, but now I'm just average. Actually, no, no, I would love to be average. (laughs) I'm not sure I'm even average anymore, and um, and this applies across a number of areas. You know, socially, uh, maybe maybe that sorority you wanted to get into doesn't think you're that impressive, and maybe that internship you want so much you're not cut out for it. And uh, whereas all these things, maybe places where you seem disqualified by your weakness, God sees you in your inadequacy and weakness and still wants you and calls you. He's the God who calls the weak and the God who calls the weak delights to conquer through them. So what's going to happen in chapter seven. So I'm going to read pieces of chapter seven. Now starting in verse two, okay, everyone's sort of drawn up for battle at this point. Starting in verse two, the Lord says to Gideon, the people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. And now skipping down to verse 7, after God has sort of winnowed down the army uh, to a couple thousand, uh, in verse 7, God says to Gideon, With the 300 men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into their hand, and let all the others, every other man, go home to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given them into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hands will be strengthened to go down against the camp." And he went down with Torah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And then I'm going to pick up uh, just one verse at the end, verse 22. Uh, this is once the battle's actually started. Verse 22, when they, that's Gideon and his 300 men, blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth-Shittah. I never know how to pronounce those things. Uh, Toward Zerah Ra, as far as the border of, I should have practiced these, Abel Mahola by Tabith. I'm sure I got every one of those wrong. So, um, what we see here is God conquering through the week. The first evidence that this is his plan is his selection of the leader. Uh, It's almost like in the meeting of Gideon in chapter 6, God's looking for the perfect leader for his army. He's looking over Gideon's resume and reading it, And he looks over the resume and sees Gideon like eyes barely peering above the wine press, and God says, "You're exactly what we're looking for." Um, and <laughs> moves on to filling out the army in, in verse uh, in chapter seven. And uh, in this first verse I read, verse two, we, we see that his pr- his overarching concern is for his own glory. He, he tells Gideon, "No, no, there's too many of you. Now there are too many of them. Uh, was not too many for Midian. They were, they were probably still woefully inadequate to go against the Midianites. But because God knows the heart of his people, it, it, he's concerned, not for the victory, he knows they're going to win. He's concerned for what they will do with the victory. Well, if there's 10,000 of you and you win, even if I'm with you, it's easy for you to take all the credit. You will take the credit for this victory. You will steal my glory. You'll think you did this, but I did this. And it's important for you to know that I did this. And for you to have the rightful understanding of your own pride and humility. And so God sets about here making the army just the right size. He doesn't need their strength. and He doesn't need ours. He's much more concerned about his glory and our right understanding of our place. So here he goes about uh, selecting his army. And, uh, and we see here in verses 7 through 11 that God plans to save Israel through these 300 men who lap. You see that? With three hundred who lap, I will save Israel. Uh, commentators are divided over what exactly is going on here. Um you know, he said, he said, hey if you're afraid you can go home and almost everybody left and went home. And then he still had too many, so God's like, all right, let's figure out how to one it down further. And he sends them all to the stream and based on how they drank water, he selected three hundred. Now commentators agree that it's one of two classes of people. That, and it's because the Hebrew is a little weird here. It's either people who were so vigilant that they like, picked up the water and lapped because they wanted to keep their eyes on the horizon. They were ready for battle at all times. Maybe chronically paranoid people, but like diligent soldiers. These are your like, super diligent soldiers. Eyes ready all the time. I'm ready to, for war. Or, conversely, these are just crazy loons who just had to drink water like a dog. They literally bend over the waist and lap the stream with their tongues. Uh, either way this is a weird 300 people it's a weird 300 people and, and I'm sort of predisposed to think it's the latter group the, the crazy ones that lap water like a dog because um, I think it goes along with God's prevailing point I, I don't really really need your strength it's, it's ultimately me that will save you but he will not do it alone it's really interesting to see this he says, it's with these 300 that I will save you. And you need to know it's my glory, it's at stake here. But in verse 9, he'll say, I have given them, he's saying this to, to Gideon, I have given them into your hand. And because he knows Gideon's deathly afraid, you know, for his, for his uh, defense, Gideon has a right to be a little afraid. You know? An army of thousands, not an experienced general, Sent into battle at night with 300 guys who drink water like a dog, maybe. It's understandable you might be afraid. So, so God provides for his fear. He's like, hey, you can like sneak into camp and eavesdrop, and you'll you'll learn that the Midianites know they're done for. They know they know that God is that I'm going to deliver them into your hand, and it will strengthen your resolve. And that's what happens. God uh, tells Gideon. Uh, I'm going to give them into your hand and your hand will be strengthened. I think it's important to know that this is the way that God tends to work. Uh, He could do everything solely by his own power, but he usually chooses to use his people. It's not solely by our power that we do things either, but he strongly works through our weak hands to do his great things. And that's what he does here. He delights to use his people to do great things. And so, in chapter uh, seven, verse twenty-two, they blow their three hundred trumpets. They are in position. God sets them against the enemy, against one another, and they have a great victory. So, with three hundred lappers, a fearful farmer, some trumpets, and some lamps, God achieves a great victory. So, God conquers through the weak. Now, I don't really know how to make this like as practical and daily in your life as I can. Uh, I'm going to tell a story and. I don't think it gets too close, but it's at least a funny story. So here you go. Uh, A pastor named Joe Novenson tells a story about an old lady who uh, used to sit on her balcony and pray. She was really poor, and she would pray because she didn't have uh, the money to buy her groceries this month. And sitting next to her was a young guy who was usually annoyed because she was always praying out loud, and she was uh, usually praying like this. And he didn't believe in God and felt it was, frankly, rather pitiful that this old, barely sane woman kept casting her hopes into thin air. And he felt like she needed to know that this stuff wasn't real, so he went out and bought her groceries. And uh, he, he put the groceries on her steps, and he rang the doorbell and stepped aside. And the lady opened the door and saw the groceries and began to say, Jesus, thank you, Jesus. Praise Jesus for giving me his groceries. At this point, the young man jumps out and says, Lady, it wasn't Jesus. It was me. I brought you these groceries. God had nothing to do with it. Give it up. It was me. What do you think of that? And this lady continues, Praise Jesus. Praise Jesus. He not only gave me groceries, he made the devil pay the bill. (laughs) So that story is to illustrate a a saying that some pastors have used, probably from the South, sort of colloquially. It's that God is good at hitting straight licks with crooked sticks. So it doesn't matter what instrument you give him, he'll hit it straight every time. And that's exactly what's going on here. Fearful farmers, 300 people that lap water like dogs, he achieves the great victory. And I tell you all that to tell you or ask you, do you believe God can do great things through you? Do you think that the God of the Bible can do great things through you? The book of Hebrews talks about Gideon. And uh, it puts them in a class with a bunch of other people. It sort of sums up the entire book of Judges, which is really messy. In just a couple of verses, I'm going to read these two verses. In Hebrews 11, verse 32, What more shall I say? Time would fail me. And you're like, Oh, not that. Time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. This part. Who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the sword. Stop the mouths of lions, quench the power of the fire, escape the edge of the sword. We're made strong out of weakness. So uh, what Hebrews is saying, they're sort of describing how God does great work through weak people, it starts with faith, who through faith conquered kingdoms. This is not contrary to what all your peers and everyone on television, every song in the 21st century, seems to tell you this is not faith in you. This is not self-belief or self-confidence. This is not you believing in you. Because if that's the case, Gideon should not be here. He should not be here. This is a firm belief in the God who makes great promises. I'm yours. I'm going to deliver my people. I promise to be with you and never forsake you. And I will use you. It begins with faith, even if it's fearful. I mean, Gideon just barely gets there, but he believes, and he fights for it, and he does it, and he wrestles with God in faith. He wrestles. I didn't read all the story, but you should go back and read chapter 6 through 8. I'm not sure I believe you. He puts God to the test numerous times, and, and every time God meets with him and assures him and provides for him, it begins with faith, not in self, but in God. And God then makes them strong. Makes them strong. Makes them able to do things they wouldn't normally be able to do. And so here I have to say a couple things. I, would, I, I firmly believe that some of you can and will do great things for God, though you're weak. But there's a couple things in the way. One, I just need to say this. I don't necessarily have anyone in mind when I say this. One, some of you are too big for your britches. You know that phrase? You know what that means? You're too full of yourself. You don't realize you're weak. And uh, I would offer two little quick lessons, maybe even things you can tell yourself every now and then, and then pray that God would help you to believe them. The first one goes like this. There is a God, and I'm not him. That's a really important one, because it's really easy for us to be entirely self-centered. And secondly, it's it's a... praise from john the baptist as uh, he encountered jesus john the baptist who had a great ministry said about jesus he must increase i must decrease for some of you and you may be saying is he talking about me not necessarily but if you want me to tell you i'll tell you you can come and talk to me um i'll tell you it might be good to ask god to humble you you should always be careful to pray that prayer because he almost always will answer and it will hurt. But if you truly want to know him and be faithful and do great things for him, it starts here. And the second is there are some of you who can't imagine that God would actually ever do great things through you. I mean, you're so weak, you're Gideon looking over the edge of the wine press saying, Me? No way. It's not possible. No, friends, listen. He can use you for great things for his glory. All right, one last point which I think was going to go pretty quickly. So Gideon was made strong out of his weakness and through it he delivered God's people. What we're going to see in this last chapter, though, is that he had a particular weakness that led them right back where they were. So we're going to finish by looking at the weakness of the wayward heart in chapter 8. And I wish every story had a good ending. This one doesn't. Um, I'll try to make it happy-ish. Chapter 8, verse 22 So after this victory, uh, which we don't have time to read about all the details. In verse 22, the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son, your grandson also, for you've saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said, I will not rule over you. My son will not rule over you. The Lord will will rule over you. And Gideon said to them, Let me make a request of you, though. Every one of you, give me the earrings from a spoil. For they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Then verse 27. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in the city, an Ophrah, and all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. And so Midian was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest forty years in the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, that is the son of Joash, went and lived in his own house, and Gideon had seventy sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And lastly, verse 33. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. All right. So what we encounter here is God has done a great work through this weak man, Gideon. He's done a great thing. He's delivered his people and given them rest. For what the text tells us is 40 years. But there's a particular weakness that Gideon has. It's not his fear. It's not his lack of, you know, his uh, unimpressive nature. There is a different kind of weakness here in his wayward heart that is fatal uh, for the good of Israel and for his own family. It, it starts when, uh, with his victory, people come to him and say, Hey, I hear you're good at this leading thing. Why don't you rule over us? And, and Gideon has all the right words in verses 22 to 23. I won't rule over you. My son won't rule over you. The Lord is your king. He'll rule over you. He resists temptation. He declines the throne. This is not his place. But his actions tell a different story. He has the right words, but he starts to act like a king. I didn't read all of it to you, but enough he shows some uh, rather distressing, royal-like behavior. In verse 24, we begins to gather spoil, these earrings, and other things I didn't read. But he's gathering a spoil like a king would. And in verse 30, we read that he has 70 sons. That should be a little distressing. How is that possible? Well, um, the text tells us he has many wives. How is that possible on a farmer's salary? Um, He's acting like a king. This is what kings did. They gathered wives and concubines. He's living like a king. And and perhaps uh, most distressingly, verse 31, he has a son by a concubine that he names Abimelech. What an awful name. Anybody know what Abimelech means? Um, so uh, I'll, I'll give you a Hebrew lesson. Now you'll know. Uh, that that first half of the word Abi is the beginning of my daughter's name, which is the Hebrew for uh, my father. So I've told this before. We have Jewish folks living on our street, and I'll call I'll call my daughter's Abiel. I've seen Jewish people on the street like stop and like what? Uh, I'll call Abiel's name, and a Jewish family walking by I'll be like what? Because I'm speaking Hebrew. I'm using a very Hebrew word that means my father. Uh. Whereas we named Abiel, my father is God. That's what El means. Uh Abimelech means. Anybody want to guess what Abimelech means? My father is the king. That's what Abimelech means. Melech is king. Gideon names his son my father is the king. That's uh anyone find that slightly ironic. Hey, <laughs> I mean, talk about acting like a king. He acts like he deserves it, like he did it, like it's his. He's stealing The glory that belongs to God alone. And and you see it in some other distressing ways. He overreaches his authority in verse 27. He makes an ephod uh, and put it in a city. An ephod is a priestly garment. God described how it should be made and what it should be used for back in the Old Testament earlier. It has its own place. Its own people are supposed to use it. Gideon should have nothing to do with it. And yet he makes his own and sets it up. And the text tells us that it leads the people and his family astray. He has no authority here. And eventually it leads them all right back where they came from. Verse 28 tells us they have rest for 40 years, but you can read the entire rest of of the book of Judges and you will not see any more rest. After these 40 years, there's no more rest. There's no more good times. There's no more good stories in this book. It's all downhill from here. In part because Gideon led them there. Right back where they started. They started in oppression because they didn't listen to the Lord, and because of his wayward heart. Here at the end, he leads them right back there, right back into not listening. Right back into the oppression. All right. So I'm going to close with two applications that we're done. Two things to say. First, very simple. Don't, don't despise your weakness. Don't despise your weakness. Despise your sin. Hate your sin. Separate the two. But your weakness. Don't hate it. I I don't think you have to love it, but your inadequacy, your struggles, don't don't hate them. Don't despise them because they may just be the thing that keeps you from ruining you. Uh, Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 2. Chapter Twelve, how God gave him a particular weakness to keep him from being conceited. Right, Paul was big stuff. He was big stuff. He like wrote a lot of the New Testament. He started a lot of churches. He saw things and knew things no one else says, said or saw. And he says in chapter twelve um, that God gave me a weakness to keep me from being conceited. Your weakness is not your biggest problem, friends. Your biggest threat is your pride. It's your pride. Beware your pride. It's what it took down Gideon. It's what will take down us all. Don't despise your weakness. Secondly, and this is the question that really the whole book of Hebrews is asking, and I'll close with this, is this. Who in the world can deliver God's people? Who can actually fully Deliver them. Give them permanent, lasting rest. Who can do it without screwing the whole thing up? Because so far, everyone screws it up. Even Gideon. I mean, you can't come up with someone weaker than him, right? And in the end, he's still corrupt and power-hungry and corrupted and leads the people astray. And Judges doesn't give us an answer. The rest of the Bible does. It's Jesus, the perfect God-man The one who had uh, all the power and the glory with the Father and willingly gave it up. Did not consider it uh, worthy to to retain it, but willingly gave it up and and became a servant. Became just like one of us and laid it all down to the point of death. That's what he did. And the scriptures tell us when we, we trust in him, put our faith in him, not only does he make us right with God, he makes us like himself. He makes us like Jesus those through whom God delights to do great things. All right, let's pray. Good Father, we thank you uh, for your way you work, that we live in a culture that is power-hungry, that we simply assume uh, personal significance is a requirement for happiness, and we struggle and we fight to make our way forward, Because if we don't achieve everything that we think we have to, we must be losers and uh, not valuable or useful. And you don't work that way. You delight in us because we're yours. Would you convince us that your love doesn't have anything to do with our performance? And that you delight to use the weak? Would you make us a people that are humble and honest about our weakness? And who do great things for you? We ask these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, we started late.